The Second Crusade has failed, but its end will open the door to the Plantagenets, that brilliant, avaricious, rebellious, murderous family that will dominate the history of Western Europe for a century to come. Here's their story, so riveting that we still are fascinated by it 900 years later. Welcome back to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic, true story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Season 2, Episode 6, Serious Attention to Public Order. Let's go back to London, circa 1150, where rowdy young noblemen showed off their horsemanship in play tournaments, the bullhorts that periodically cleared the streets. Another proud citizen described a place filled with gardens, trees selected and planted for their beauty as well as their utility, blooming meadows, and wells pronounced sweet, wholesome, and clear, although it must be said that this happy assessment of the local water is largely trumped by other reports that the English drank so much ale that much of the population was probably no better than half sober half the time. Even monks had an ale allowance amounting to two gallons per man per day. Probably a straightforward example of cause and effect, Londoners fell out of windows, slipped into cauldrons, tumbled from horses, or plunged into rivers with remarkable frequency. Perhaps 30,000 strong, one of the great cities of Europe even then, slung about with hastily constructed neighborhoods that became slums almost as soon as they were built, dotted with the brick townhouses of the newly wealthy, brimming with ale shops and bathhouses. London was just what you'd expect from an elbowing, clever, impatient, energetic race. Virtually all of it lay on the north bank of the Thames, with a couple of bridges linking the two sides of the river. You would have recognized an early wooden version of the Tower of London, and seen several now long-gone castles that served more as defensive fortifications than places of banqueting and romance. The city wall, with its seven double gates and multiple watchtowers, was a source of considerable municipal pride. So was Westminster, the royal palace, despite being several generations old and looking it, thanks to twenty years of war-induced neglect. Neither wall nor palace, however, was as popular as the 24-hour public cookshop on the riverbank, where sweating short-order chefs pumped out a steady stream of boiled venison, fried lampreys, and roasted nightingales for the famished, quality entirely dependent on the weight of one's purse. Everything happened at the river. Baptisms, hermits bathing, boys with nets snaring breakfast among the multitudes of birds, water wheels powering blacksmith forges, fish ponds, trash heaps, dumped sewage and ritual offerings. If you had come back from a pilgrimage to Compostela, say, you'd bend your souvenir pilgrim's badge to mark it as divorced from earthly commerce and toss it into the water. Westminster was too dilapidated to be a suitable royal home that winter, so the Plantagenets lived at Bermondsey, on the south side of the river. 
It was a marshy old place, marked by a manor house, a dock, and an abbey surrounded by acres of meadows and a good number of sheep. Eventually, it would become the site of the hatter's trade with its toxic chemicals, giving rise to the old saying of being mad as a hatter. But in Henry and Eleanor's time, rowboats carrying lords in furs, tradesmen, knights, bishops, clerks, court ladies, and laundresses came and went all day, unless it was too cold, perhaps cold enough for people to walk across, while excited boys lashed animal shinbones to their feet and skated by like birds in flight. As February melted into March A.D. 1155, medical men and nursery maids arrived. Eleanor was in labor for the fourth time in her life. She was 31 years old. The baby was a second glorious son, this one named Henry, to be known for the rest of his life as young Henry. Bonfires would have been lit all along the river, and then on into the farthest reaches of England, Normandy, Aquitaine, and Anjou as word spread. The birth of the new prince marked the only time that year the chroniclers would mention Eleanor's name. While Eleanor was occupied with her pregnancy, Henry was immersed in creating his official family. Historian Frank McLinn commented that it, quote, sometimes almost passes belief that a relatively primitive society like that of 12th century England could have boasted so many occupations. Secretaries, accountants, constables, archers, attorneys, clerks, bailiffs, knights, esquires, chamberlains, chaplains, painters, ushers, huntsmen, heralds, dog handlers, laundresses, even barbers, gamblers, jesters, fortune tellers, whores, and pimps. And like most bureaucracies, the number of people on the royal payroll only grew with time. A few decades later, when Henry's son John was king, something like 150 household dignitaries would be on the royal Christmas list. There were three particularly critical royal offices for Henry to fill, and there were five serious candidates, each possessed of his own avid supporters awaiting the happy day when the gravy train of royal preferment would begin to chug in their direction. Competition for the job was intense and closely watched. A great deal was riding on the outcome, especially for an unknown commoner named Thomas Beckett. Two men were in competition for the job of chief justiciar, a position second only to the king himself, a combined chief justice of the legal system and prime minister for internal and external affairs. Both contenders were from old Norman families, dating their English roots back to the conquest. Richard de Lucy was a 66-year-old with a long record of public service, having been the chief royal official in Essex County back in King Stephen's day. That obviously meant he had backed Stephen rather than Henry's mother Matilda in the long civil war. This would, one might think, make him an improbable choice to serve as second-in-command to Matilda's son. But many of the rich and powerful had sided with the sitting king during the anarchy, and Henry seems to have coolly concluded 
that talented men should be kept close. De Lucy's rival was Robert de Beaumont, Earl of Leicester, heir to a dizzyingly aristocratic lineage. The first Beaumont to come across the Channel was knighted for bravery at Hastings and went on to acquire a spectacular array of titles and properties. One of his daughters was an acknowledged mistress of Henry Beauclerk's and had three or more children by him. The Beaumonts had also been active supporters of King Stephen during the anarchy. Like most great men, they had preferred to stick with what they assumed would be the winning side. The Robert de Beaumont known to Henry Plantagenet was called the Hunchback, giving us another sliver of a window into this distant, distant time. But whatever the exact nature of his deformity, it doesn't seem to have restricted his very active life. Despite the family's backing of Stephen, Robert himself had switched to Henry's side when the young challenger first arrived in England, providing castles, local support, and always welcome money to help with the invasion expenses. The Earl of Leicester would therefore seem a triumphant shoo-in for the lustrous and lucrative title of Chief Justiciar. People probably grumbled over it, but they did agree that there really was only one contender for Treasurer of the Exchequer, the rock-ribbed Nigel, Bishop of Eli. Nigel was an interesting man. He came from a family held in warm regard by Henry Beauclerk, so much so that Nigel was appointed Beauclerk's royal treasurer when he was only in his twenties. He became a bishop later, his tenure marked by grumbling at his abbey that he was overly adept at converting church income to personal use. When the anarchy came, Nigel flipped sides twice. But despite having potentially offended everyone in those unhappy days, his acknowledged experience and talent as a manager made him the obvious choice for the exchequer job. His family was not fond of the Beaumonts, and vice versa, a grudge that dated back to the Civil War. Finally, there was the Chancellor slot. It was as important as it sounds. Chancellor to the King of England, the one who made the government actually go, who attended royal councils, wrote out the charters and writs, got letters off to the Pope, advised on policy, and carried the great seal of England. That wax mold embossed Henry, by the grace of God, King of England. Matilda had recommended one of her favorites, William de Vere, whose father had served as justiciar years before. Let's stop here for a brief side note. The name de Vere may ring a faint bell, some believe that a 16th-century de Vere named Edward is the real Shakespeare. Matilda may have been motivated by combined admiration and guilt. She had once promised William her own chancellorship, a promise she was never able to keep. Foreclosed from that royal government, de Vere had gravitated toward the church, in particular the household of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop Theobald had an eye for talent. De Vere found himself in the company of another Theobald protege, an intelligent, slim six-footer by the name of Thomas Becket. Now in his mid-thirties, Becket was a deacon, 
a lesser level of clergy which implied a life of service to the church, although not priestly ordination. A Londoner by birth, raised in what we might call an upper-middle-class family, Beckett had been educated in the law at some well-regarded schools, spoke the three dominant languages Latin, French, and English. He was widely thought articulate, witty, amiable, and energetic. He had also been actively tutored in the refinements of the Archbishop's sophisticated international world. But Thomas Beckett was nothing but a merchant's son, while William de Vere was a nobleman. The de Lucies, the Beaumonts, and the de Veres, three powerful families with long memories and swaggering temperaments, who would be given the nod by this new young king, and who would be left to fester with resentment? Henry displayed remarkable finesse. Beaumont and de Lucy would both serve as justiciar, senior, and junior, but he passed over William de Vere. Thomas Becket, a commoner of merely respectable birth, had just become chancellor to the King of England. Nothing good could come of it, people said. It was entirely the wrong way to run a kingdom. Now the truly hard work of kingship could begin. From the vantage of some 850 years on, we can see quite readily what Henry and his counselors had to piece together day by day, week by week. He had to create trust in the future, a task that would essentially never end, a slow rebuilding that would take the remaining 40 years of his life. Tentacles of rebellion, persistent as poison ivy, had to be beaten back and then beaten back again. Taxes had to be stabilized and collected to restock the stripped royal treasury. Rival kings had to be curbed, friendly kings allied. His borders had to be strengthened and, if he was lucky, expanded. Cities, farms, ports, and abbeys had to be rebuilt after two ugly decades of war. Confidence in trade had to be restored. Useful information had to be recorded, shared, retained. The justice system had to be reformed. And the Plantagenet dynasty had to be secured. Above all, he needed some reliable process to manage it all. This huge kingdom could not endure if each bit of it depended on his royal presence. Even Henry Plantagenet, incessantly on the move, could not be in two places at once. So, he began the work. He started with the castles. We love castles, seeing them as romantic treasures. In the 12th century, people hated them, since they drew trouble the way lightning draws thunder, and demanded a lot of sweaty, unpaid, humping labor besides. They tended to shelter often nastily violent men who intended to eat food without going to the trouble of growing it themselves. One agitated chronicler wrote mournfully, Every powerful man built his castle, filling the country full of them. Then they filled the castles with devils and wicked men. Then they took those people they thought had any goods, men and women both, and tortured them. Then... 
they robbed and burned all the villages. In short, not a happy time for people who could merely watch as the walls went up. The idea of sprinkling these noble bastions about the countryside had been perfected by one of Henry's ancestors, Folk Nera, a count of Anjou. Folk had figured out that if castles were strung out in a line, each about twenty miles apart, each one vastly increased the power of its neighbors. They could mass troops and supplies, protect the locals, and delay aggressors who had to devote a lot of costly resources to get past them. Once built, staffed, and supplied, castles were damnably hard to overpower, since all they had to do was hang on long enough to watch their attackers down tools and go home, having run out of food, clean water, horse feed, firewood, good weather, and or soldiers' terms of service. Their very existence was accordingly so provocative that barons with the resources to build them were supposed to ask the king's permission before laying the first timber. Not everyone did. Men had gotten away with it under Stephen, but Henry was young, determined, and possessed of the energy of a sizable village. Along with his archers and knights, he took off, first for the flatlands of Suffolk to the east, then swinging north to Yorkshire's dramatic countryside. Most of the castles that he went after probably weren't that ambitious in construction or design to start with, but he either got them under his control or pulled them apart, farmers hauling the stone and planks off to build barns and fencing. Then back to London to see his new baby son, and meet with dozens of churchmen who anxiously waited on the new king to renew their charters, those essential royal guarantees of protection and right to revenue. Eleanor signed her name as a witness, beside de Lucy and Becket, who would have carried the great seal in its velvet bag. Then on to Wallingford with his queen and their two baby princes, this time for a grand assembly of the nobles, where each knelt in front of the eldest son, two-year-old William, to swear loyalty to the death. A chronicler wrote approvingly of Henry's serious attention to public order. This impressive young king who was said from the very outset to bear himself like a great prince. One of his outstanding accomplishments, the kind of thing we still would find praiseworthy even if Henry had accomplished little else, was his interest in the royal justice system. Before his time, what justice there was came from local lords taking miscreants in hand according to their own ideas of law and order, or from religious courts with independent rules for anyone who'd taken any kind of religious vow. Henry plunged into reform of this disorderly system with his usual energy, going so far as to urge that nobles be subject to the same judicial penalties as commoners. Even peasants, provided they were free men, could appeal from a local court to the king's bench. One modern historian calls it the most advanced judicial system in the West for its day, although the medieval concept of an eye for an eye was still much in evidence. Among the sentences available to a Plantagenet judge, was slicing off the lips. 
even in the midst of restructuring a government, one had to be practical. The royal family needed a place to live. Despite its lilacs and orchards, Bermond Sea proved small, isolated, and damp. Westminster, on the better side of the river, had been a royal site for some five centuries, since Saxon times. It was majestic in scale, with its abbey church and magnificent hall, the length of two and a half football fields. Smaller buildings, more in keeping with normal life, let adults eat, work, and sleep, dogs and babies underfoot. Henry liked the feel of the great hall, but having endured sixty winters as well as savage attacks during the anarchy, it had become raggedly damaged. Broken hinges, gouged stone at the arches, burned timbers at the roofline, moth casings littering the ledges. Who knows how royal officers got their assignments, but Thomas Becket was told to fix the old place up. What he did would be characteristic of the man for the rest of his life, he flung himself into the work, sparing no expense, hiring hundreds of workers, buying up all the straightest timbers and flattest stepping stones, calling up ale brewers and bakers for the workmen's rations, ignoring the soggy rain and chill of a London spring. The project started right after Easter that year, at the end of March. Anyone who didn't know Beckett would have guessed it would be done in a year or two the Chancellor presented it to the royal family in May. Henry, smitten with speed and energy as he was, was thoroughly smitten with Thomas Becket. His new Chancellor, invariably described as refined, groomed, attuned to every nicety, was the perfect foil for Henry, who hated all of that. Meetings bored Henry, while Thomas could pay attention through a four-hour negotiation with two bishops that drilled the core out of a summer afternoon. Courtiers had to be attentive to the king's interests. Entire livelihoods depended upon it. They now watched Becket rocket to the top of royalty's favor, and not just in the council hall. Henry and Thomas were like best boyhood friends grown up with access to time and money on a scale enjoyed by very few on their earth. They rode together, argued dogs and hawks and religion together, drank together, shouted, mocked, sweated, hunted, worked, played chess, and strategized together. Thomas could dispute theology, ride hell for leather, drink wine, critique a policy, entertain ambassadors from Germany, or snatch up a sword on a dare and go full tilt across a courtyard. Henry finally had a real brother, one he could trust, one who cared for his interests first, not one who mumbled about rebellion. The king so valued the man that he would place his son young Henry in Becket's charge when the boy was six. To the extent king's love, Henry Plantagenet loved Thomas Becket. At the height of Becket's career, more than 50 clerks worked in his offices. One of them later said that he never sat down for dictation from Becket unless he had dozens of quill pens sharpened and ready. Since there was no time to deal with a dull nib, there was so much to be done. 
little surprise that Thomas was sought after as a patron by lesser men, for his recommendations and approvals could readily make their way to Henry's ear. In turn, intimacy with the greatest king in Europe made commoner Thomas Becket first very powerful and then very rich. Money gushed through the Chancellor's hands, enabling him to delight in a wardrobe of cloaks and tunics in every color of the dyer's complex art. The best food, horses so gorgeous they'd stop your heart, trained servants to keep his house, fantastic wines to be poured with a lavish hand at dinner. Like all great lords, he had his own private army, larger than some dukes could muster, noted for its dashing military prowess. He even had the luxury of his own private zoo, which reportedly included wildly exotic monkeys, winsome little creatures that charmed even the starchiest bureaucrat. There's a hint it was a life he'd always dreamed of. The chronicler William Fitzstephen wrote of Thomas's fascination with what was described as the glittering, knightly lifestyle of a well-to-do friend of his father's, who mentored Beckett for a time as a boy. Now, Thomas was achieving the very same for himself. He was becoming a very powerful and very wealthy man, and would soon be surrounded by as many enemies as admirers. To his great misfortune, one of those enemies would come to be Henry Plantagenet, one of his closest friends. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge, adapted for us by the author Karen Markle Knapp. Thank you to Francis Butt for voicing our introduction. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating, follow our channel, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, join us again February 19th for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts, streaming on YouTube with video episode trailers, and on Facebook, where you can ask questions, leave reviews, and interact with me. Until next time, thank you for listening.